Please pray with me now as that God would bless the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We pray, O Lord, that you would now give us ears to hear, hearts to obey your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Justice and mercy. What are they? How do these mysterious attributes of God hang together? How do they relate? You know, how can God, who cannot be in the presence of anything sinful, show mercy to his creatures who are full of sin? and still be a just and righteous God. How can he do that? Well, let's just take a look this morning, and I want to begin with this story. It was in the midst of the Great Depression, a bitterly cold evening in January 1935, when New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia, he came into the night court in in one of the poorest wards of the city, And he told the presiding judge that he was invoking a little-known statute which allowed him to serve as judge any time he wanted to. So he, he sat as a judge that night, and he heard many cases, and he pronounced sentences on many people. But there was one case that he heard that literally broke his heart. It was the story of a young woman who was accused of stealing bread. He asked her how she pleaded, and she pleaded guilty. He asked her about her circumstances. She told him that that her husband had abandoned her, that she had two young children who were ill-clothed and ill-fed, and she had no job. She had no way of providing for them, and she was reduced to stealing. Well, as you might suspect, the the mayor's heart was broken. And it was clear by the look on his face that he was going to pronounce her not guilty. When the victim of the crime, the owner of the bakery shop, stood up and said, Your Honor, she's guilty. She said she was guilty. She admitted it. She pled guilty. She has to be punished. Well, the mayor knew that the owner was right. And so he pronounced sentence upon her. He knew that the lowest sentence he could impose was a $2 fine. So he imposed that merciful sentence of $2 upon her. She said she had no money to pay. And so the mayor reached in his pocket, took out $2, and he handed it to her. You know, I hope that you see the point. I think you see the point that in the courtroom. On that cold night in January 1935, justice and mercy met together at the same time. So what are these things? Well, justice is when we get exactly what we deserve. No more, no less. Justice was what that woman in that courtroom was required to pay before the mayor to the victim who said she had to pay. The ultimate penalty could have been $10. 
But mercy is when you're given something that you don't deserve. And that mercy in this case was not only did she not have to pay this penalty, but the penalty was paid by another. Now, as touching as that story is, the Old Testament tells an even more beautiful story of how justice and mercy met in one place a thousand years before Christ came on the scene. If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to 2 Samuel chapter 4, I want to read verse 4 first this morning. Now, this is a four-part story. It's a story of four scenes. It's the story of a fallen man, a story of a king who set his mind on this fallen man. It's a story of how this king extended mercy to this fallen man when, in fact, he could have given him justice. And it's a story of how this fallen man accepted the mercy and grace of this king. Here's some, here's some background to the story. We know that in the Old Testament, a time came when Israel demanded a king. Now, Samuel kept saying to these people, you don't want a king, it's a bad idea. You don't want a king, it's a bad idea. But they kept insisting. And so the Lord said, okay, I'll give you a king. And he picked the tall, dark, handsome, and at that point, humble Saul to be their king. And after Saul became king, David went, if you recall, and he killed Goliath. He brought Goliath's head back to Saul. And David and Jonathan, Saul's son, became fast friends. Well, you know from Scripture that over time, Saul became self-absorbed. He rejected God's leadership. And therefore, God rejected him as king over Israel. And so now a new king, David, is going, to, is going to come. Now, after God rejected Saul as king, a battle took place. It's called the Battle of Jezreel. And in that battle, Saul and Jonathan, his son, were killed. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 5. Actually... Saul killed himself. You know, he didn't want to be killed by the Philistines. And after his death, there was this war between the house of Saul and the house of David, where the relatives of Saul kept trying to take the kingdom back. It got pretty ugly. 2 Samuel 3, verse 1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And this was why, in that day, not that, not that David actually participated in it, that the king of a new dynasty typically wiped out the entire family of the, entire, uh, of the king of the old dynasty, so that there would be no threat to his throne whatsoever. So in theory, in that day, and in the practice of other nations, every family member of the house of Saul was, a, was an enemy of King David. 
and David, according to the rules of the game. He had every right to go after them. And that brings us to the first part of this Old Testament story, which has to do with a fallen man. And as we get, let me just take a little side. As we get into this story, I want us to keep something in mind. And that is whenever you were looking at Old Testament passages, particularly Old Testament narrative, which this is, we should always ask ourselves two questions. We should ask ourselves, where am I in this story? And where is Jesus in this story? So as we get into this, I want you to keep those two questions in the back of your mind, all right? 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, Jonathan, who was Saul's son, was David's best friend. He had a young son, a very young son, a child. And that child, just like every other member of Saul's family, was now under condemnation because Saul and Jonathan were dead. And David was now king. And now every member of Saul's family was now a potential enemy of King David. And so what happened? The child's nurse, who knew all this, knowing that the child was in danger, now that Saul and Jonathan were gone, immediately she grabbed up the child. And she ran to hide him because she thought that he was about to be killed by David. And as they were fleeing in haste, the child fell, and he became lame. Now, here's a lame man, a man who for the rest of his life, who would never know what it's like to take a nice evening stroll. He can never run to meet a friend. He can never walk a daughter down the aisle. And although it doesn't say it here, it could be that he was actually reduced to begging, like many in those days who had some kind of physical disability like this. It's interesting. Even this child's name showed how he was fallen. The name Mephibosheth actually means a shameful thing. So here's a Here's this lame man who can't walk, who's a shameful thing. And isn't he a picture of us as fallen men and women? You know, most of us aren't physically lame. Some are. But we're certainly spiritually lame. We can't walk to God. There's nothing we can do to get to God. We're morally lame. We can't walk in the paths of righteousness by ourselves. 
were fallen and broken creatures, rightfully coming under God's holy justice and condemnation. We're like Mephibosheth. We're shameful things. Well, let's fast forward 20 years. You know, since David's house was at war with Saul's house, Mephibosheth traveled about 60 miles to get away from David and his troops and his family. Mephibosheth went into hiding. Now, he knew that David wasn't going out and actively seeking the relatives of Saul to kill them. That wasn't David's way. But he also knew that there was a war going on between David's house and Saul's house. And he didn't want to take any chances. He wanted to sort of stay under the radar. You know what? Likewise, because of our relationship with Adam and Eve, our first parents, we're fallen, shameful things. You know, we don't act with justice toward others. We're enemies with God. We're subject to His justice. We're far from Him, and we hide from Him, don't we? You know, listen, we hide in our sin. We hide in our pleasure. We hide in busyness. Some people even hide in churches. We hide in colleges. We hide in a lot of places. But we hide from God. But you see, while Mephibosheth was hiding from David, he wasn't forgotten. Part two of the story. We see a king who sets his love upon a fallen creature. Well, what about David? What was he doing during these 20 years or so that Mephibosheth was in hiding? What did David do? Well, basically, David was consolidating his kingdom. You know, historians say that when David took over, Israel was about 6,000 square miles. Now, 20 years later, it was about 60,000 square miles. He also consolidated worship. He brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and worship was, was going on there in Jerusalem. But with all this responsibility, as a very busy man who had a lot on his plate, David's heart was set on what he could do for this fallen creature. Turn over, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And let me just start out by reading verses 1 through 3. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. You know, here's David. He he sat on his throne with all this responsibility, uh, with all the things that he had to do, And yet he mused about what he could do to show mercy. And so he said to to all those courtiers who were attending them, 
He said, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that for my friend Jonathan's sake I can show kindness to? Are you kidding me? Now, here's this, here's this busy king, the most powerful man in the world with lots to do. And he's saying, is there anybody that I can show mercy to today? And these advisors and these strap hangers who were around him, they were aware, very aware of that old army principle that whatever slightly interests my boss is something that really fascinates me. <laughs> and so they all sort of stand to and they, they run off to find the answer to the king's question. Now when the king heard that there was one left, he sits up with a start. He says in verse 4, where is he? And Ziba says, uh, Saul's old servant tells him that he's living about 60 miles away in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now here's a very interesting and important thing that we can't miss here. The name Machir actually means debt or sold into bondage. And the name Lodabar means emptiness. Isn't that interesting? Now here's Mephibosheth, this shameful thing, lame thing, hiding out in the house of debt. After his fall, he fled. He found himself in exile in this house of bondage, living in a land of emptiness. You know, doesn't that remind us that after our fall, we too find ourselves in a house of bondage? You know, we have this huge sin debt, which we can't possibly repay. And we live in a land of emptiness. So what did the king do when he heard about this lone survivor of Saul? Look at verse 5, 2 Samuel 9, verse 5. It says that David set his thoughts on this fallen man. He sent and brought back this shameful thing out of the house of bondage, out of the land of emptiness. You know, likewise, as children of wrath, God sought us out. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 say, We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were once children of wrath. Enemies of God, just as Mephibosheth was an enemy of King David, or at least he thought he was. Why did David do this? Was it because Mephibosheth had something to offer the king? I don't think so. Here was a man living in a house of debt, in a land of emptiness. He's a shameful thing. He can't even walk. All he can do is beg. What was it that Mephibosheth could offer David? Absolutely nothing. So why, why did David do it? You know, Scripture tells us that there are essentially two reasons why David did it. 
first of all, he did it to show the kindness of God. Look back at verse 3 for a second. David inquires here if there is still not someone in Saul's family to whom he could show God's kindness to. Now, that word kindness means mercy, means steadfast love. Sometimes it's translated as loyalty. And doesn't God show all those things to us? You know, over in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know, nothing in us could ever have warranted or merited the king coming from Jerusalem to pull us out of the house of debt and from the land of emptiness. Like Mephibosheth... We had absolutely nothing to offer the king. You know, I think a a second reason David did this, it was to fulfill a covenant made with his friend Jonathan. If you would turn back a few pages to 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17. 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 17. In that passage, Jonathan is speaking to David. And he says to him, David, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. You see, David says here, yes, he will take care of Jonathan's heirs. He will take care of his children. And the only child remaining alive at that time was Mephibosheth. So now... All the king's attention and power is focused on going and finding this guy. And that brings us to part three of the story, where a king extends his mercy to a fallen man. So the king sends his men to Lodibar to fetch Mephibosheth. Now, can you imagine how Mephibosheth would have reacted to this? Here you are. You know, you're 60 miles away. You think you're laying in the weeds, under the radar. You're living in somebody else's house, (coughs) incognito. You've been hiding out for about 20 years, and nobody has come. And then suddenly, out of the blue, there's this knock on the door. And there's people at the door. You know, I was thinking about that. If that were today, These people would probably be men in dark suits wearing sunglasses with earpieces talking into their cuffs. So Mephibosheth answers the knock. Yeah, can I help you? Is Mephibosheth there? Here? Yeah, that's me. 
Come with us, please. Why? King David wants you. What's this all about? You'll find out when you get there. And imagine for that entire 60 miles, this guy's sweating bullets. He's wondering to himself how he was found out and thinking, oh man, you know, I'm the grandson of King Saul. Everybody else is gone. I'm toast. Turn back to 2 Samuel 9 and look at verse 6. 2 Samuel 9 verse 6 says this, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. When they arrive in Jerusalem, He's ushered, Mephibosheth is ushered immediately to the king. It says here he falls on his face in fear and reverence to the king. And what does the king do? He looks on Mephibosheth, who by all rights is his enemy. He's one of the last living relatives of the previous king, and and he could be a threat to his kingship. But instead of looking on him as his enemy, what does he do? He calls him by name. And he looks on him with love and mercy. Why? Because when he looks at Mephibosheth, David doesn't see him as the enemy. He looks at him and he sees his friend Jonathan. He sees the covenant he made with Jonathan. He sees the son of his friend. And isn't this how God looks on those who believe in his son Jesus Christ? He looks on us not with anger and justice and wrath, but with love and mercy and compassion. He doesn't see us and our sins. He sees his son's righteousness. And then David makes an astonishing offer to this wretched creature standing in front of him. He tells him in verse 7, verses 9 and 10, look there, and let me just paraphrase it. He says, Look, Mephibosheth, you don't have to be afraid of me. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore all the property your grandfather had. And now you own it all. It's all yours. But you don't really need that property anymore. You know, I'm sure it's going to produce a lot of money from the crops that come off it. All the servants are yours. But you don't need that because, you see, You're coming and living with me, and you are going to eat at my table continually. What does it mean to eat at the king's table continually? You know, we know that the table is a place of intimacy. It's a place where we sit around, we talk about issues. It's a place where even the most powerful person in the world can sit with his children. And they can laugh together and they can converse because they're family. You know, God has invited us to his heavenly table. And in just a few minutes, we're going to get a little taste of what it'll be, what it's going to be like when we gather around this table set before us and commune with him and with each other. You know, I think continually, it means a couple of things. First of all, it obviously meant time. Continually means forever, in perpetuity. He would be at David's table 
forever. But it also has a positional meaning. Take a look at verse 11. It says there that Mephibosheth would be, would eat at the king's table like one of the king's sons. You see, that's what it meant to be at the king's table. Not why am I not killing you because you're in the line of Saul. But you're going to be sitting at my table as one of my children, as one of my sons. And doesn't God do that for us? If we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we no longer have to fear God. He wants to show us kindness and mercy. He wants to restore us to himself. He, he wants us to sit at his table in perpetuity as part of his family, as his sons and daughters. And that brings us to the fourth and the final part of the story, the story of how this fallen man reacts to the mercy from the king. You know, this offer of mercy and grace came to Mephibosheth. And what did he do with it? Look at verse 8. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? You know, Mephibosheth says, yes, I received this mercy, but I certainly don't deserve it. You know, here's the scene. David is sitting at the dinner table with his sons and daughters, and Mephibosheth, he's always running a little late. He comes clumping in because of his lameness. And he sits down at the table, you know, beautiful tablecloth, table full of delicious food and drink, and he enters into all the talk that's going on because he's part of the family now. And he, and he, and he sits there, and he wonders... No doubt with tears in his eyes at this amazing mercy and grace that brought him a lame man, a shameful thing, to the table of the king. He can't get over it. He could have gotten the king's justice. He knows this. But instead, this dead dog received the king's mercy and grace. How do you think Mephibosheth would have lived out his days after this? Forever sitting at the table as a son of the king. What do you think? Is he going to be ungrateful to this king? If the king asked him to do anything, do you think he would refuse? Is he going to be ashamed to share his amazing story with others? No, he's going to shout his story from the rooftops. Listen, I was a lame man. I was brought out of a house of bondage, out of a land of emptiness. The king found me. He brought me here. I'm sitting at his table, and I don't deserve this. I think which begs the question, what kind of sons and daughters are we? If our great king asks any one of us, I want you to give your life in my service on the mission field as a pastor, as an elder, as a deacon, as a teacher of children. In some way, I want you to live your life for me. And if he asks, who are we to disobey? Who are we to refuse? Well, time is short. Justice and mercy 
certainly met in this relationship of King David and Mephibosheth. And I, and I pray you see that this story, it's a remarkable illustration of what took place a thousand years later at the foot of Calvary. You know, if you look at it, the cross was at once the most just and also the most merciful act in history. Think about it. God would have been unjust to punish Jesus if Jesus had not first willingly taken upon himself the sins of his people. And once Christ did that, then he became the most grotesque thing on the planet, utterly repugnant to the Father. And and the Father rightly poured out his wrath on him. God made Christ a curse for the sin he bore. And by doing that, God's holy justice was satisfied. See, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. All that was done for us. And this for us aspect of the cross is what shows the majesty of God's mercy and grace. At the same time, justice and grace, wrath and mercy meeting at the foot of the cross. You know, it's almost too astonishing for us to fathom. But it's true. We believe it. We rejoice in it. 2 Corinthians 6.1, in, 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 in that verse, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, we appeal to you, Corinthians, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't reject this wonderful grace, he says, because now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. You know, it was a typical Sunday evening service at the Illinois Street Church in Chicago, Illinois, a service that I would imagine much like this one. The date was October the 8th, 1871. Pastor Dwight Moody had preached a sermon in which God's free grace was offered to the people, many of whom Moody suspected were not believers in the Lord Jesus. Now, some of these people didn't listen to Moody. They blew off his invitation to receive God's mercy. They ignored Paul's admonition to the Corinthians not to receive God's grace in vain. Many went home and simply went to bed not giving it another thought. Does anybody know what happened at 9.45 p.m. October the 8th, 1871 in Chicago? What's that? The cow kicked the lantern over. And the great, that's right, the great Chicago fire happened that evening. The Illinois Street Church burned to the ground. Moody's home was destroyed. And about 300 people lost their lives, many of whom were at that evening service, many who hadn't yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who were simply thinking about it. If you haven't yet received God's wonderful mercy and grace offered to you in Jesus Christ, I exhort you to receive it now, even today, because you don't know what tonight or tomorrow or this new year will bring. None of us know. Turn to Christ now. 
Ask Him to clothe you in His righteousness. If you do that, God promises that He will look on you not with His justice, but with His marvelous mercy and grace. And you will be eternally safe and eternally secure. Do it now. Today is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this Old Testament story, a story in which we can see ourselves clearly and we see Christ so clearly, a story where your justice and mercy met. Thank you that it illustrates how your justice and mercy met at the foot of Calvary. Lord, for those who don't know this mercy and grace, I pray that you would open their hearts and receive it even today and thereby escape your holy justice and become your son or daughter and eat at your table continually. For others of us who have received this great but grace but yet still fall, stumble, still sin, God, help us to live in its light that you would be glorified in our lives, that we would be just in our dealings with others and would draw others to your table. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen and amen.